So here's the deal. The first question today comes in on the topic of hell, a very challenging question from the perspective of a non-Christian. And all the questions today are coming from a non-Christian perspective. That is the kinds of questions that cause people to have doubts or, or challenges directed towards Christianity, stumbling them in their own journey towards trusting in Christ. And, and I want to try to give you guys thoughtful, to the best of my ability, logical, thoughtful, reasonable answers to these questions, hopefully making a case that points you to Jesus. Yes, I absolutely want you to get saved because I believe it's true, right? Jesus died. He rose again. He did this to pay for your sin and mine that we could know God for all eternity. He did this because God loves us, even though we sin against him. And I think that the truth of this is so valuable. I, I hope I can point you towards it. So the first question is this from Jacob Smedley. Uh, why does God give infinite punishment for finite crimes? This is a, a hell question here. Even from a biblical point of view, not every crime is prescribed the same punishment, which Jacob, I think you're onto something there. We'll talk about that. So why then can a person never serve the entirety of their punishment in hell? Um, so yeah, why, why, what's up with the, the issue of hell and the justness or the, the consistency of the topic of hell? So what I have here are uh, eight facts about hell or eight things I'm going to say about hell. So let's go through eight factors about the topic of hell. The first one is going to be this. Uh, not everyone gets the same punishment. And, and the reason why I'm going through these factors like this is because a lot of people don't know this stuff. Um, and maybe you, you know some of this, Jacob, because you've already mentioned one of them. But but a lot of people don't know these things. And it causes them to evaluate the, the, the topic of hell as though they're coming from sort of a clumsy perspective. And, you know, we want to think biblically about everything. So here's biblical things that help us change our perspective on this topic. And I can't answer every question on this topic yet. I haven't done a full study on this issue yet. But first off, not everyone gets the same punishment. That's the first thing you want to know when it comes to the topic of hell. Not everyone gets the same punishment. Let me actually take you guys to a passage in scripture that helps us see this. Matthew eleven twenty one. it says, woe to you, Jesus speaking here, He's traveled around. He's in person. This is the greatest revelation that God has ever given mankind. It's in the person of Christ. He's come to cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida. They've rejected him. Notice Jesus never came to Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they got they got judged. But the judgment for Chorazin and Bethsaida, these guys, is actually worse. So Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Let me fix that just a little bit here. Adjust just a little, there we go. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, here's why this is super, super uh, significant to me. It's a future thing, right? It's not talking about how tolerable Tyre and Sidon uh, was, the judgment that they experienced before Tyre and Sidon. I said Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. That's a different passage in scripture, but it's rather a future judgment. And there's a difference between the way they will experience those judgments. Right here, Sodom's mentioned down here, by the way, for those who are wondering. It is in the same passage. But um, so in the future, Tyre and Sidon will experience future judgment, and it's going to be different in the punishment and experiences they have. Then Jesus adds the Sodom and Gomorrah aspect here in the next verses. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be, future tense, more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This, to me, implies, right, you, you could, maybe you could interpret it a different way, but I think the implication here is that um, Sodom has a future day of judgment, and that when you compare, right, these cities to Sodom, 
Sodom will have it easier, which is to say, your observation about how every crime does not get the same punishment in the law of Moses, that's actually very true about the, the issue of final judgment. Everybody does not have the same final judgment experience in the future. So it's tailored to the person depending on the sins they committed. I'll give you more scripture on this. We have eight things we're going to go through here. Then we're going to go to all your guys' questions. But Luke chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus tells a parable uh, talking about a future coming judgment. He says, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, this one who knew, he will be beaten with many stripes. Uh, are they literal stripes? I, I don't think that's the point at all, actually. I think the point is his punishment will be more extreme. Then you have uh, he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes. Does he get off the hook? No, he's beaten, but with few. So that not only is your are your sins specifically punished, but your knowledge is also dealt with. So it's like, well, they did that, but they didn't really fully understand how bad it was. Well, they will be punished according to their understanding. What about the person who did it and knew exactly how bad it was? They will be punished according to their understanding as well. So punishment in the future is very much weighted and personalized depending on what you knew, what you could do, what you chose to do, all of those types of things, how much revelation you had, you know, cores, and they had Jesus right there and they didn't listen. Um, so that was a bigger, bigger issue. Another verse that talks about this directly about judgment is Revelation 12, 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is going to be uh, just confirmation that it's according to their works, not just, and here's something people say sometimes. They'll say that, the um that that the only reason people go to hell is because they reject Jesus and the only sin that they're judged for is rejecting Jesus and I think that this is a, a, I understand what people's heart is on this I think it's a clumsy and inaccurate way to represent the Bible I think that we should think of Jesus as the way out of hell and not Jesus as the way into hell you catch the difference here it says they'll be judged according to their works Jesus said they'd be judged depending on their knowledge and what revelation they received, as well as depending on the types of sins they'd committed. That seems consistent throughout scripture. And so Jesus, it's not like you go, what, what are you in here for, Jesus? It's like, no, I'm in here for all the sins I committed, all the things I did, exactly weighed according to the knowledge I had. If I had received Jesus, he would have been my way out, but I rejected him. So I rejected the only way out. Now I suffer for my individual sins, which may include rejecting Jesus, but it's not as though that's the only sin that uh, people deal with, and therefore they have like this same experience in hell. So that's the first thing. Not everyone gets the same punishment in hell. Just like the law gave different punishments, which is, that's just grounded and founded on the idea that, that that's a just thing. Punishment fits the crime, so to speak. Second issue, I got eight of these I'm going to go through. The second one is this, do people stop sinning in hell? Now, sometimes we assume that that's the case. Like, we've done all these sins in life. I die if I've rejected Christ. Then I'm going to stand and punish for all my sins. And then I'm in hell and I'm there and I I've, I don't sin anymore. So 100 years later, a million years later, a week later, I have not sinned in that time. And so we think that what I'm experiencing now is just corresponding to what I've done in, the, in life. And then, therefore, there should be a ticking clock that ticks down. I should be, like, released. I'm, I'm paying for my crimes here. Um. That doesn't seem to be the case, though. Um, so if you're still conscious, if you're still conscious, then you can still sin because God cares about your heart. He cares about your thoughts. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, where he says, if you 
um, are angry without just cause at your brother, well, you've, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. Okay, so you could do that still. Um, lust, pride is one of the worst sins in the scripture. Pride, and that is absolutely something that you can still do even when you don't have access to like social media, which does amplify the problem. Um, so failure to love God or others, uh, ongoing rejection of Jesus, bitterness towards God about your condition, uh, continued evil imaginations that you experience. All I'm saying here is we should not evaluate the fate of the person in hell as though they became holy the moment they entered hell. They didn't. In fact, they are no longer experiencing the work of the spirit around them to try to draw them. It, it, there's a there's a really good chance people get worse, not better. So that's something I just want to say. People don't just stop sinning and we shouldn't evaluate the length of hell as though there's no more sin after death. So I think that might help your question, to be to be honest. Um, also, why think hell is static? Here's number three. Issue number three is why do we think hell is a static experience? Now here, I, I mean this as a genuine question. Um, I'm not saying hell is not a static experience. I'm asking why we think it is. You see, I want to move you to the place of doubt on this particular topic. At least that's where I am. If I'm wrong, may 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 I come to the light and understand the truth on this issue and be able to share it with others. But it may be that the initial moment of judgment, here's a possibility, is worse than later moments. This is actually, ha this happens a lot in scripture. So um, when the people of Israel are attacked by the Babylonians and then deported out of uh, Judah, are deported out of the land, they're brought out of the land, and then they're deposited there in, in Babylon. The initial judgment of getting drug out of the land and the, and the deaths and the pain and the suffering is worse than the, their condition a year later while they're at Babylon. Is that still punishment? Yeah, it's still punishment, but it's not statically the same at all times. So they're still out of the land and they're still suffering to, to an extent, but it's not the same extent as they were on the day what, that Lamentations writes about, you know, when Jeremiah writes Lamentations and he's like just grieving and sorrowing. That was, that was the worst part. That was a much worse season. So I think the same can possibly be true of hell that forever doesn't mean doesn't mean every moment is identical. If the punishment is measured, and even if sin is ongoing, and maybe punishment continues to be ongoing, it doesn't mean that the sin, the punishment is the same in every moment for eternity. I don't know if, how it's different. All I'm saying is minimally this. We should not act like we know hell is a static experience, unchanging. We shouldn't act that way. There may be aspects of it that are unchanging. There may be aspects of it that change. We just don't know. So we shouldn't make a judgment about it based upon an assumption there. All right, that's number three. The fourth issue is this. Sin is way, way worse than we think. This is actually a theme in scripture, that sin is far worse than you think or I think. I could give you many, many examples, but I, but I actually want to zoom out and just say, it's actually a theme in the Bible that sin is worse than we think. Right When Adam and Eve ate, it, they are their response and the things that they do demonstrate that they're aware there's something wrong, but they don't seem to realize how bad it is. When Cain kills Abel, he doesn't seem to acknowledge how bad it is. When others do wicked things, they don't acknowledge how bad it is. The sinners almost always make light of sin, me included, me included, right? I have the sins that I commit that I simply have a calloused heart to. You can feel this when you, when you do a sin for the first time and you feel horrible about it. You do it for the 500th time, it barely registers. How much that I do, whether it's gossip or selfishness or 
just a harsh word, the cruelty to people, responding wrongly uh, to somebody, that it's just I'm calloused and I don't see how I know it's wrong. I get kind of okay, you know, it's kind of bad, but but I don't realize how bad it is. Let me give you a scripture that kind of helps show some of this. Jeremiah six fifteen. This verse talks about this issue and it says, um, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? The people of Israel? No, they're not ashamed at all, not even remotely, nor did they know how to blush. God is not just saying, hey, they sinned. He's highlighting a problem, which is that they don't even recognize how bad the sin is. And so it says, therefore, they shall fall among those who fall and the at the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Why, what's one of the reasons they're being punished? This is catch this. This is like meta information about the Bible. At least, at least if I understand the word meta right, I don't know how you people use it nowadays. Um, in my head, this works. So, the the one of the functions of punishment is to strip away the calluses and show us how bad sin is. Think about this for a moment with me. If you probably many of you probably never thought about this this way. One of the functions and purposes of punishment is to strip away the calluses and show us how bad sin is. I can give you an example. And this is this is not meant to parallel this situation to hell at all, right? But, but this is an example. I was a teenager and my mom um, had, I was at a friend's house and my mom was like, I'm going to pick you up at this time. And she came early, like two hours early. And I was really having fun with my friend. And she came super early and I was like, mom, she's like outside honks. And I was like, she said, and I just didn't want to go. I was being obstinate and disrespectful. I don't want to go. And she's like, come down right now. Right? And I didn't, I stayed up in this room playing and stuff. And she just drives away. Right? And then my friend's parents had to drive me home. And my mom was, was in the right here. Um, uh, and I was in the wrong, but what happened as a consequence of this was not just that my friend had to give me a ride home. It's that there was this important trip that I wanted to go on and I couldn't go on the trip. That was my consequence. This is one of the rare moments where my mom actually punished me because she rarely, she would usually just let us get away with everything. So she actually punished me here. Now here's what happened to me personally. Um, it might be that, that, that the, in this case, the punishment was, was too big. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't know, but I know this when I experienced extreme consequences for what was just outright rebellion, ignoring her, disrespecting her and not doing what she told me to do. I felt terrible, rightly and justly terrible. I was like, until I had suffered this punishment, I didn't realize how bad my rebellion was. And there was something in me. I was a Christian at the time. And there was something, I think the Holy Spirit just working in my heart to show me like you did wrong. And this punishment is showing you that it's wrong. That is, I think, how punishment functions. It's how it functions here in Jeremiah. He's like, you can't blush. So he's going to effectively teach them how bad their sin is with great and serious punishment. And it's actually, this is the, the deportation and all this other stuff that I read about or talked about earlier about lamentations. Punishment wakes us up. So I think if you look at hell and you go, man, this seems too extreme. Oh, this seems so extreme. And hopefully you don't have a, a wrong view of it. Hopefully you realize not everyone gets the same punishment. They don't stop sinning. And there's no reason to think that it's just a static experience forever. But we should absolutely think that sin is worse than we realize. That's the function of the law, in fact. Huge theme in scripture. The law is there to show you how bad sin is. And how does the law show you how bad sin is? Read, read, read the New Testament, right? Because it talks about this in great detail. By telling you that whoever sins will die. And then listing all the sins that can lead to death. 
by showing you the punishment is extreme. Therefore, you must realize the sin is really bad. This is my view towards hell. I hope it can be your view, even if it's not yet. I hope you move in this direction. God is holy, just, and good. If he punishes people this strongly, then people must be sinning really bad. That's the logical perspective, I think. It's illogical to think, well, God must be wrong. Um, oops, sorry. That's, I don't know why I hit that button. Well, let's go to number five. Part of hell, part of hell can be viewed as consequence, not merely punishment. Um, so not merely punishment, but consequence. Let me give you an example. Um, it's connected to punishment. I'm not separating it from that, but I think that we should label it as consequence as well. So consider a divorce. A man cheats on his wife serially, or perhaps he's abusive or both, and she uh, rightly divorces him or vice versa. A woman cheats on her husband serially, is unrepentant, she's abusive uh, in extreme ways, and then he divorces her. Now imagine this. She's like, hey, it's been 20 years since you divorced me. I know I did all those bad things, but haven't I suffered enough? Shouldn't you take me back? There's there's an appropriateness to say, um, in this case, no, like it's not just about how much you've suffered. It's about the permanence of that moment. You did something and the consequences are the permanent severing of a relationship. That's it. So another example is banishment from a country. Let's say that you're a danger to the health of the community such that you get banished from a country. You get You get kicked out deported and then you're like but it's been 20 years and they're like well i mean are you different now are you changed now it's not just about how long it's been since you did those things it's also about the person you still are and that if we bring you back you're going to keep doing it so there's a permanent separation that happens there this is not to be my full answer in any way shape or form but i think there's a piece of it here since you've rejected jesus and he's the only way for you to actually be transformed you ultimately have chosen to be outside the community of god and that's a permanent thing. It's a consequence, not just a punishment. Uh, the next thing, number six, is, uh, and this I got to be um, honest with you guys here and say that, that hopefully I'll clear these things up in the future. I'll be doing a project on this one day. Um, but there are things I do not know about hell. Surprise. <laughs> I've said some things here that I think I can say with confidence, but there are things I do not know about hell. And I'll give you an example. Jesus describes hell as where the worm will not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, when I was like a, a kid, I had heard from a youth leader, um, uh, probably before before I even a attended Sunday services, I just went to like the youth group on in, when I was in junior high on like Thursday nights. And uh, I remember them talking about hell and they said, have you ever experienced burning your finger? And I had definitely experienced burning my finger of uh, being being a healthy young boy. I, I played with I played with fire and um, I just touched the stove even. So I'd experienced burning my finger. And that intense, intense pain, especially to a child, I feel like pain is more intense when you're a little kid. It's like, now I do something and it's like no big deal to me. So I was a kid, it would have been like way more painful for some reason. Um, at any rate, he says, you ever experienced burning your finger? Now imagine that spread over your whole body forever. That's hell. Um, this was hit. Now I'm not trying to rip on the, on the path. Look, teachers pastors and stuff we all end up making some mistakes along the way it's sad it's the reality of things i've made mistakes along the way i hope people are gracious to me about it uh, especially if i've grown beyond it but this i think is an inaccurate perspective and so jesus says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched that's how he describes part of this sort of final punishment final judgment but if you're going to take that fire to be totally literal 
and you're going to appeal to this statement of Jesus, the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, then you're going to have to take that worm to be literal too, right? You can't just take one, like same sentence. You can't take one of the descriptors as literal and one as figurative. So if the fire is actually totally literal, you're just on fire all the time. Um, it is difficult to understand how people have different punishments at that stage, but also, which seems to be implied very heavily in scripture, but also you have, have worms that are part of it too. And catch this, the worms are in the fire too, which means you have fireproof worms. Do you think that Jesus was trying to communicate fireproof worms? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. So I think there is symbolism here and the fire doesn't represent something good. I'm not like a fire just represents the warmth and comfort. Like, no, no, no. It represents primarily, I think it's symbolic for destruction for the, for, and for loss, right? In first Corinthians, it talks about this one who, who, uh, loses their rewards and, um, and it uses fire as a, as a, a metaphor for that. And so I think that there's, there's, there's that possibility there that we we're just taking some things too woodenly in some places possibly. I don't know the answer here. I'm just saying these are some of the questions I still have on the topic of hell. It, the, the, hell's also described as separation from God, outer darkness, everlasting contempt, and everlasting punishment. And these things don't all go together easily if you have fire, but you have darkness. Right? It, it's obviously, it's not, it's not natural. It's not a, it, anything we're familiar with as far as fire goes. You don't have that. So what is going on here? It's, it's, it's about your separate you're away from God, you're away from the kingdom of God, you're away from the light, you're away from the comfort and the joys and the treasures of heaven and you're suffering great loss. That's for sure that's there. Weeping and gnashing of teeth does imply at least that there's pain. Fire does seem to imply there's some kind of pain involved, but is that static? Is that the same experience for a million years later? Is the same exact experience as day one? I don't think there's any reason to assume that. I don't want to project that onto scripture. And um, a, a, a clumsy, or I should say a wooden application of fire <clears throat> fire language would would seem to be hard to harmonize with the idea that Jesus says it's different punishments depending on what you knew and what you did so these are things I don't know about hell is exactly what is that experience like unpleasant yes <laughs> exactly what in great detail what enough where I can say everybody's experiencing this exact kinds of feelings and sensations for eternity I can't do that um, another thing I also don't know, and this is number six, a separate category, is um, I'm open to the idea, although I'm not persuaded of it and I'm not in that camp at all right now, okay, but I'm open to the possibility of annihilationism or conditional immor immortality. This is the view that um, somebody, when they die, there's a temporary season of punishment that it does involve physical, usually annihilationists would say physical suffering, but then you die, 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 right? Like you cease existing and you're you're gone. Um, so annihilation is what happens to you. They say conditional immortality because that represents how they get to their view is it's the nature. You don't, nobody's immortal. Naturally, you have to be made immortal and God's not going to do that to you if you're not, if you're not saved. Um, now I, I used to feel like this was just straight up like heresy. This was many, many years ago, right? Because I thought conditional immortality was just, oh, that's like Jehovah's witness stuff, right? Annihilationism. It's not really an exclusively Jehovah's witness. It is in their teachings, but it's not representative of like, if you're Jehovah's witness, your, all these weird beliefs you have about Jesus and doctrines all, all force this view. Not necessarily. Um, there's a much wider group of people who hold this view, non-Christians as well as real Christians. And to be honest, um, 
and I'll be, and, and again, this is my, I'm saying this for now because in the future, I'm going to do an actual study on the topic of hell and I'm going to deal with all this annihilationist stuff as well. That's after I do teach through Hebrews, which I haven't even started yet. So we're talking like, could be years, could be two years out, could be more, could be, could be less. We'll see. But in the future, I'll do a whole thing on this. But what I will say is this, um, what a lot of people have said is at least the, the, um, conditional immortality perspective when it's, when it's shared by someone who's doing a good job trying to communicate why they believe that it's more impressive than I thought. Um, the Bible does have on, I see both. It has destruction language that sounds like you're just gone. You're just destroyed. But it also has language that says like everlasting punishment that seems more easily to easy to explain on the idea that you continue to exist this is why eternal conscious torment comes into play as, as the, the, the view that I think is more, is far more typical amongst Christians and th throughout history. Um, but it's not heresy. It's not like they're denying Christ or something like that. Like this is a, a view within Christianity where we can agree to disagree. And some people have that view and I have not vetted it fully. So I, um, I throw it out there as information. I don't know the answers to it just yet. Okay. Number seven, we only got two more, um, important to understand that the people in hell don't want to, at least, at least in some sense of the term, they do not want God. Um, they might want out of hell, but they don't want heaven in its fullness they, in a sense they'd be like yeah take me to heaven i want to but if they don't really want heaven in its fullness because its fullness is christ and the holiness of god and the transformation that comes by the spirit and these are things where like in john it talks about people who love the darkness so they don't go to the light that there's a does there's a our once in some sense biblically speaking our once get manifested in the decisions we make before we hit eternity and so there's, there's a desire. I don't want to be in hell, right? But I also don't exactly want all that God has either. That's something important to recognize. Uh, number eight, last one. And this is all I'm going to say is uh, trust God's judgment. If you are, you're not resolved on this at all. Um, that's okay. I respect that. But I'm encouraging you to simply trust God's judgment. This is a position you can take where you say, um, I hear all these things, Mike. I'm, I, but I still feel uncertain. I feel a little emotionally bothered and disturbed by the idea of hell, even with all this other stuff you've said. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm rejecting Christ. It's just, it's just, I just feel uncomfortable with it. What I can say is this right now, you can, you can't appreciate hell. You certainly don't appreciate it. You don't think it's laudable, but you can trust God's judgment. There is a time coming when you will appreciate it in the future. That is, you will have a new perspective from heaven, from eternity, where you see how bad sin is, how holy God is, how appropriate justice and judgment is, and you understand how these things play out, and you'll actually appreciate it. An example of this is in Revelation, where we get kind of a preview of our attitude towards God's future judgment, where God judges, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, and I'm not going to get into all the symbolism here, but after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, hallelujah. That's a, that's a, that's a rejoicing term here. That's a praising term. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Why are they praising God? What's, what's brought up this spontaneous worship in heaven? It's because his judgments are true and just. They're appreciating his judgments. What did he do? He's judged the great prostitute, not, not one person, but, but, but something bigger than that, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. These people in heaven now, this great multitude, which is going to be us too, 
they appreciate God's judgment. They don't just trust it. What I'm asking you to do now is just trust it. In the future, you will appreciate it, even if your heart doesn't quite understand it yet. That's okay. That's an okay place to be in. You will understand it better later. And that's a wonderful position of faith to have between you and God. Uh, there's more that can be said about this, but I just want to say, if non-believer, if you're listening, before I go to all your guys' questions now, we got a bunch of them queued up. I implore you, don't reject God's forgiveness because of your confusion or questions about God's justice. It's like refusing a pardon. Like if you're a criminal, you're sentenced to prison, you refuse a pardon that's going to let you out of prison because you wrongly believe that the prison itself is unjust. Even though you've never been there and you don't really know what it's like and you don't really understand how bad the crimes are that the people that go there have done. And this particular prison is run by a holy and righteous being with perfect knowledge of all things. It would be unwise to reject God's gracious offer uh, because of that. So let's go to the next question. Question number two, coming in from SBGM Strunk, who says, if God knew humans would fall to sin, then why did he allow us to live in this fallen world? And why not take us straight to heaven? Um, I, so I, I like these kinds of questions. I just want to have them with a bit of self-awareness that where I'm saying um, it's, 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 it's always easy to ask questions but it's helpful to ask, should I expect myself to know the answer to this question or even expect Mike Winger to know the answer to this question? Um, why why did God do this? Interesting question, good question, but would, would we expect to know the answer to this question? Let me give you another example of this, this type of thing. Like, why did God allow this child to die? Pick a, a person you, you've known. Um, I can pick people I've known in, in situations. Why did God allow that to happen? And when I ask myself, should I expect me to know the answer to why God is, is allowing and not allowing things, specific things in specific people's lives, I kind of laugh at myself because I'm like, there's no reason why I should expect to be able to answer this question. Now, if you don't expect to be able to answer it, then it becomes a, an interesting question to think about, possibly a heartful question to think about in some cases, but it's not something that actually challenges Christianity because you know, it's, it's kind of like if I gave you this crazy math problem that was super hard and was like, answer me this question, this math problem. Now, it doesn't mean there is no answer just because I can't figure it out. It just means I'm not in a position to figure it out because my math skills are subpar. All right. Here's your question. If God knew humans would fall into sin, then why did he allow us to live in this fallen world and not just take us straight to heaven? Um, one of the ways in which potentially we can seek to answer this question is to, is to just look at what God's done through the fall. That's a pretty helpful thing, right? To say, hey, well, let's just look at what fruit came out of it. Not the bad. We all know the bad. What positive things came out of it? Well, let's see. Uh, mankind ends up being rescued by the gracious love of God. That wouldn't have happened had the fall not happened. The incarnation wouldn't, would not have been necessary. The crucifixion never would have happened. So the love of God would never have been manifested to humanity in any real significant way, the way it is through the cross. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Or in this, in this the love of God is manifest. Right? They gave his own son for us. These are, these are important truths in scripture that we would simply not know about, or at least we would not have demonstrated. That's interesting. So one benefit is that the love of God has been revealed and manifested through the gospel because, and I should say, because, or at least in relation to the fall, there's a causal relation that's there. Uh, one is required, at least. The fall is required for that. Another thing that's happened, a benefit that's come from the fall, is that people are actually making free will choices about whether they will, they will serve and love God for eternity. The benefit of a free will choice, it, when it comes to the issue of love, it's kind of like marriage. Um, 
to show this. Uh, imagine if my wife had no choice and I just picked her out of a crowd and was like, you, you to one, we gonna get married. And she had no choice and she never at any point had a choice, but she would just automatically be committed to me and stay married. Now, some of you would like this. You'd like to just pick a girl and be like, she's a one. Um, I say this is a very, while this is a, uh, in one sense, you might, oh, there's a benefit here. Is I, anybody I want? And it's just, boom, marriage. There's a downside here in that the lack of free will means that the faithfulness they de- they dis- they uh, demonstrate to you, the love that they give you, right, that loyalty they have to you is of lesser value, if, if of any value. It's definitely of lesser value than love that comes from a free will and a desire to care about somebody and a free choice to commit to them. And so there's love is being manifested from God to us through Christ, through Christ, but love is also being manifested from us to God as we choose to follow him, as we choose to trust him, as we choose to receive him. Another one of the benefits that some, some people offer is, um, I've, let me try to think what they call this. I think they call it like the, the, the hero's journey or the, an odyssey. I can't remember the right term for it. Forgive me. Um, but basically one of the benefits is the idea that, um, by having, not creation in a perfect state, but rather by having creation, then fall, all kinds of chaos, including bad things and evil and struggles and hardships, and then a new creation with a perfect state. This state, this new creation is better than the one that would have been made if there was no fall. And one of the ways it's better is uh, obviously the, the love that's been demonstrated, the free will that we have, Another one, though, is the um, the overcoming of struggles and hardships actually is a goodness in itself. It's a good thing. When you go through hard times, you don't like it. But but years later, you've probably had this in your own life. Years later, after going through hard times, you look back and you go, I'm not really glad I went through that exactly. But boy, did some good things come out of that in my own character, in my awareness, in my own situation. Like I've grown more through pain than I ever have through pleasure. I've learned more through suffering than I ever have through things going well. Um, and so there are goods that come through these things. And and we even gravitate towards this because the stories we look to, the movies, the shows, and even the personal stories that we care about the most are people who went through great hardship. And we look at the, the journey they went through as having gold came out of it. We do this all the time. So when you have a whole creation that's gone through these things, then that final heaven is is a place where there's all the lessons learned, um, all the refining and the gold that comes out of those hardships. There's there's three reasons right there that I'll give. Um, there could be other reasons as well, um, but those three come to mind. I hope you find them helpful. Let's go to question number three, Gary Taylor. How do you know that Christi- the Christianity you believe is the same they were practicing in the early church of history, says Constantine and the Greeks changed things? Oh, there should have been like a period there or something. Um, the early church of history, the early, basically the early church, the history of the early church, I'll reword your statement here, says Constantine and the Greeks changed things. Okay, um, let's let's look at first, how do I know the Christianity I believe is the same? I think the answer here is going to be the, the same answer that, that brings a solution to Constantine, your, your worries about Constantine and the Greeks. Um, I have this group of documents that are actually from the founding of the church pretty impressive right like i got the original founders documents and i got what they wrote and i have like the teachings of jesus directly 
And then I even have the Old Testament, this this old Hebrew scriptures that Jesus appeals to and refers to and talks about and that is is tied perfectly with all of the things that Jesus did and said and, and accomplished. I have Jesus's own disciples that I can learn from. When I learn Christianity, I don't directly learn it from Constantine. I directly learn it from Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, Paul and Peter and, and these guys. I, I learn it from the original sources in the New Testament. I'm getting the apostles' teachings in the scriptures. This is amazing. This is actually super impressive when you think about it. What are the chances that any, or I'm not, this isn't evidence for anything, or just, just for a second, just kind of marvel at how cool it is. What are the chances that there's any religious leader from 2,000 years ago that has multiple, multiple accounts of his biography as well as the original writings of his followers to be able to learn from? So Constantine comes 300 years later. Um, I know he didn't change the text of scripture. We, we have manuscripts that prove this. We have lots of evidence for that. Okay, so if anybody suggests that, some think, oh, the Council of Nicaea in, in the 300s, that's where they chose the books of the Bible. Like the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the books of the Bible. You're just a victim of inf- internet misinformation. Um, there's, there's just nothing Constantine could do to hijack Christianity because I get to go back 300 years before him and I get to learn from scripture. This is where I, I, I hold to that, the authority of the word of God. Now, it's possible that a church institution, right, like at any, at any local church, whether it's in Rome or in Constantinople or some other location, that they could change over time and there could be accretions where they, they add to extra things to the stuff that was revealed and that we read about in the New Testament. But we can actually compare them to the scriptures and then that will help us see where those extras and additions came in. So I think that this is something we can do. Um, how do I know that the Christianity I believe is the same as I go to the text of the scriptures for this. And I also have, you can also look at history itself as a secondary source. You look at just history in general and you go, oh yeah, I can look at the accretions. Like I, I see where marriage became a sacrament way, way, way later. I don't, I, so I don't follow marriage as a sacrament. I don't follow that sacramental system at all, actually, because I don't see it in scripture. Or I could see how there's no priests in the New Testament and then the priesthood arose slowly over time. So I can see these accretions both in scripture and in a historical study where you you actually get to go to the documents themselves from before the time of, say, Constantine or others. Yeah. Um, oh, let me, last thing I'll say on this, though, is uh, obviously I could be wrong on, and I probably am wrong on some aspects of my Christian faith. Um, and that, that, that bothers me and doesn't bother me, right? It bothers me because I care deeply that I get it right. And because these things are so important and so, so valuable. And if I love God, I certainly don't want to be wrong. And especially as a teacher, I'm super accountable if I teach something that's wrong. So that's bad. But but the part where it doesn't bother me is I don't think that the core, the basic doctrines of my Christian faith that I hold with an iron fist, I will not let go of these dogs, the death and resur- bodily resurrection of Christ, his second coming, the idea that you must repent of sin and turn and put your faith in Christ and you'll be you will be totally forgiven by purely by God's grace. Like these things I hold with an iron fist and I don't have any doubt about them being right. But sure, I could be wrong on other issues. Um, Fortunately, I don't think they are the central aspects of Christianity. So I would start at the core and work your way out from there. Agnostic Questions says, a woman stopped dating me because of worldview differences. Um, I believe in a higher power and wouldn't wouldn't pull her away um, it hurt badly. Why do some Christians do that? She seems indoctrinated. She can't marry a non-Christian. Hmm. 
So this is a tough one for me to answer because I do have an opinion on it based on, I, obviously I only, I only know this much, so you might share more of your story and then I would be like, whoa, that was messed up. Um, so that's possible. So what little you've given, I have an opinion, but, but here's the thing, I'm treading on your heart here. Okay, there's few things that hurt more than a breakup like that. And to think that the breakup was sourced in her Christian faith is probably pretty offensive to you personally. I, I understand that. Um, but I'm going to share my honest thoughts here. So let's pretend for a second, agnostic questions, that Christianity is true. Just for a second. Hypothetically, I mean, obviously I am confident Christianity is true. I'm asking you to, to from your perspective, engage in the hypothetical Christianity is true. Um, if that's the case and that Jesus is the most important person in the world to you, it really would matter if your spouse wasn't a believer in Jesus. It really would make a big difference, right? Like if he's following Jesus and knowing Jesus and serving Jesus is like the number one thing for your life, it would actually be a really big deal if Christianity is true. Now, if you think it's not true, then you find it just annoying probably, but that's actually probably a pretty big deal. But this is a big deal also for you. Like imagine you guys have kids and this is where these religious differences in couples, they actually show up a lot is with kids. Okay. Because when you have children, you will find that your feelings, I, I think this is what tends to happen is your feelings intensify about what you want and don't want for those kids. And so the battles can get pretty bad between husband and wife when it comes to something as important as religion. So she wants to take those kids to church and she wants to have them exposed to the gospel and the biblical teaching and Christian truth and doctrine. And you're like, as they get older and older, you're watching kids start believing things you think aren't true. And so you're like, this ain't working for me. And so it creates more and more conflict over time. And I watched this happen. Uh, homes where you have a pseudo-Christian and a non-Christian, they get along okay. Homes where you have a serious Christian and a non-Christian, it's a, it's a powder keg for a number of problems that will not go away because you have kids, especially. This is something that is actually serious. It's a serious issue worth reconsidering the relationship. Um, finally, I would just say this, that if she's a real Christian and she's serious, then the Bible actually says not to marry a non-believer. I mean, it does teach us this. Um, in two places, in 1 Corinthians, where it, it talks about not being yoked together with a non-believer, well, that would obviously apply, even though you believe in God, you're not a believer in Jesus. That non-believer didn't mean atheist there, it just meant not a believer in Jesus. So that yoking together, that would apply to marriage. It may not be exclusively about marriage, but it would apply to marriage as well. But also in scripture, when Paul talks about, Romans talks about a woman who, um, her husband dies, he says, you know, yeah, she's free to marry anybody she wants. And he adds a qualification, only in the Lord. So even if you don't think this is something you like and you find problems with it, it is Christian teaching is all I'm saying. Christian teaching does actually say that a woman is not, or, or a man is not supposed to marry a non-believer. Now, a lot of Christians don't like this. You're not alone. Lots of Christians don't like this and ignore it completely or, or suddenly have new interpretations. I knew a, a friend who married someone who was a non-believer. They were not a Christian. They weren't atheists either. They were just not a Christian. Uh, they were following a different religion. And um, I share with them the First Corinthians passage. And they go, well, that's about business relationships. <laughs> that yoking together. And I, I, I laugh because um, if you were to apply it to business relationships, you would also have to apply it to marriage. It's like you, you can you can get married to non-believers. You can't, husband, I married you, but we cannot do business together. Like that's, obviously this is just like a, I'm just coming up with interpretation on the spot to justify my decision to do what I want to do. Lots of Christians don't like this, okay? But that's what the Bible tells us to do. So if she, in a sense, you can applaud the integrity 
of her sincerity, she's actually following what she says. She's not being a hypocrite. It's hurtful, but it, but it, it seems actually wise to me. I have a better solution for you, though. You become Christian, and then you guys can be serious about a relationship together. Okay, I'm just playing with you, man, but I really do hope that you reconsider these things and, and continue to look at them and pray and seek the Lord and ask him to reveal himself to you. Uh, number five, let's do Sarah Carraway, who says, how is Christianity like or not like a cult in either definition and or practice? Well, this is, I was talking to my wife today about this meaning of the word cult. So here, there are two very different meanings of the word cult. But first, let me let me tell you how I've heard this go down. I was talking to somebody who um, we were using the word cult to refer to like Mormonism or like the World Mission Society, Church of God, the Mother of God cult. Um, and um, the, the person responded to me by saying, well, you know, um, I was talking to so-and-so about this, but then they, they showed me a, de- a definition in a dictionary that says cult and that would include Christianity. That cult is like any system of religious, any religious system that includes like rituals and, and, um, and specific practices. And so they're like, so Christianity is a cult. And to, to the person, this actually felt, okay, I'm guessing here, but I, I think what they meant when they said that was that's like a check mark against the truth of Christianity because you can technically qualify it as a cult. Here is, this is what we call equivocation, right? I have two different definitions of a word and I'm swapping between them uh, willy nilly. I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this properly. So Christianity, is it a cult? Yes and no. There is a scholar, the way scholars usually deal with religion in general. Okay. Scholars talking about religion will use, usually use the word cult to talk about like any religious system that has like rituals and practices. So almost every, every religion is kind of a cult, right? Like Islam is a cult. Christianity is a cult. Mormonism is a cult, but, and this is important. This we'll call this definition. Number one, this definition is not pejorative. This definition is not a judgment on the truthfulness of the thing. It's not a judgment on whether the, whether this religion fits the Bible or not. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's literally just saying you're religious. You got practices. You got, you got rituals. That's it. So this word cult, it applies to Christianity, applies to all religious groups, and it's not pejorative. It doesn't mean anything negative at all. Then there's a theological meaning of the word cult that is used probably on mostly on a popular level, right? But we use it all the time when we say Mormonism that's not Christianity. That's a cult. This is a very different meaning of the word. This word means cult in the sense of um, imitating Christianity, but not really Christianity. That That's what we're getting there. So this definition is pejorative, okay? But it's also very selective. It's, it's like uh, selectively applied. It, uh, I shouldn't say selectively. I should say it's narrowly applied. It only applies specifically to religious groups imitating Christianity. So I would say... Um, Islam, would you call that a cult really? Is it imita- it's kind of imitating Christianity? It's sort of a cult of Christianity slash Judaism, yeah. But I would not um sorry, I'm getting a lot of text messages that I can't handle. Um I'm getting totally distracted by them too. All right. Away with you, watch. You look at my tan line. Um oh, okay. So so this is this is like a, a pejorative term used to refer to usually something that tries to impersonate Christianity, but it's not. And that, that's how I've often used the term. Then there's another, like I say, a third definition, actually, that I'll add to this, which is a uh, cult is often used to refer to whether they're, they say they're Christians or not. It's just a group that is hyper controlling, that is overly controlling, 
of the members of the group, and we'll call them a, a cult as well. And so these are three different uses of the word. All I'm saying is don't mix them, okay? So in, in one sense, Christianity is a cult. In the other two senses, it is not. And don't mix the two, and you should be fine if you just understand these different uses. Yeah. Anyway, I hope that that, that helps clarify things somewhat for you. Libby, Libby Neef says, Why are some people so quick to celebrate when God answers small prayers, but they overlook the fact that he didn't answer bigger prayers like healing someone of cancer? Um... Yeah, I can see how it would feel that way. It would look that way to to someone who's uh, a non-believer. I can, I can see how it would look that way. Um, I also want to add another piece of the puzzle here, which is I've long felt that a lot of times Christians too quickly claim that something is an answer to prayer, a specific answer to prayer, and that makes this problem bigger. So a person goes to... Uh, parking is probably the best example of this, right? They go drive to the parking lot and they're like, God, give me a good parking spot. And then, and then they get a good parking spot. And then they're like, God answered my prayer and gave me a good parking spot. And then they're like, Lord, heal my grandmother of her brain tumor. And he doesn't heal her of the brain tumor. And then the skeptic says like, well, so God gives you parking spots, but he won't heal brain tumors. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I think the actual flaw here is in thinking that the parking spot was a miraculous gift. Um, that's what makes this weird. It's thinking that God's going to answer all these little prayers, like you said, but not answer the big ones. I'm going to suggest that we are wrongly assigning answered prayer to any time we get what we want and not recognizing when God's truly answering prayer. Now, when is God truly answering prayer? Well, I don't have a rule for how I understand that. Obviously, if something's miraculous... Like something's obviously outwardly miraculous. You know that was God's an God answering prayer. If other things happen, I'm not sure. And I don't have like this quick and fast rule to discern in every moment. Was that answer prayer or was it not? So my response is like, yeah, um, I I don't, I think we over celebrate all these little answers and that's what all the little supposed answers. And that's what makes these, the, makes it look like there's disproportionate no's to really important big things. I think that God generally wants us to just do our best, work hard at things and accomplish things and not rely on him to do everything for us through, through miracles, to be honest. Prayer does have a purpose and does have functions. And there's many times where prayers go out for people who are sick and they recover. And it might be that God used natural healing processes. It might be that God used the doctors to heal them. It might be that God just miraculously healed them. I have seen this in my life. It's rare. Right? It's not, I don't see it every day. I'm, I don't walk around with some special healing ministry. Not at all. But we have seen this where at least it, at least you could say it looked like something miraculous. You know, someone goes in and they go, hey, you have cancerous cells. We need to come back. Uh, it, what looks like cancerous cells. We need to come back for a biopsy. And they, they, they go in and it's gone. They can't find it anymore. And years and years and years later, it's still gone. They can't find it anymore. Um, so I've prayed for people and seen them healed. I pray for my, my grandmother who had brain tumors. And she passed away. Now, oddly, okay, this is totally, totally anecdotal. I admit it. I felt as though the Lord was telling me that that she was not going to make it, that it was just her time. And I was really hesitant. I don't, I don't go around saying things like that to people because who am I? What if I'm wrong? But I, that was my impression at the time. Um, interestingly, before this happened, though, she had invited me to come out to Hemet to pray for a friend of hers who also got diagnosed with cancer. And we all gathered around. It wasn't just me, right? It was like a room of like 20 people. 
And I'm like, you know, there aren't too many people in my family who you would call on for prayer. So they were like, Mike, will you drive out to him and pray for her? So we prayed. I prayed for her. We all prayed for her. And there was a different sense in the room that God was going to heal. I'm just anecdotal, okay? Just sharing you what happened. And God did actually heal her. Uh, her cancer was was completely gone. And it was so many years ago, I don't remember all the details, like specific details. I, I just share that with you. I think, uh, Libby, what I want to point out is this. God does do miraculous healings, and there is actual evidence for it. Proportionally, people probably over-celebrate little things, and it makes you feel like there's a disproportionate thing going on here. I think I've addressed why I think that is. But it doesn't mean God never does it, or it doesn't happen at all. Even in the book of Acts, um, it, it wasn't constant, the healings. It was sometimes, it was occasionally. That was my, and, and it seems to decrease over time. Seems like healing was more as the gospel went to a new place, but it wasn't like God's always doing healings all the time. And uh, and in the Old Testament, God does do healings, but it's very rare. Like Jesus even talks about it. He's like there was lots of uh, lots of lepers in the in the in the land of Israel in Elijah's time, and who who gets healed? Just one, just one guy, Naaman the Syrian. So that at least if there's some, that's great evidence for God. And I would recommend you look at uh, Craig Keener's two-volume series, Miracles, where he tries to catalog and give you actual evidence for a number of miracles. This is an important work. He talks about um, why miracles should be believable. So he'll talk about, like, say, David Hume's argument against miracles, if you're familiar with that. So a philosophical argument against miracles, he'll get into that stuff. And he'll also give you specific accounts along with uh, eyewitness reports and um, other evidence that they've gathered that you can look at. Check that out. Craig Keener's set miracles. All right. Question number seven, castle to kingdom says ex Mormon here. Surely all Christians believe things about God that are incorrect, but they're still saved. What makes LDS different? How are my misconceptions acceptable when theirs aren't? Well, you're ex Mormon. So they're not really your misconceptions now, are they? I mean, maybe they are. Maybe there's some things you've carried over. Let me just point out two extremes, right? Um, here's one extreme. I think that you would agree with me. This is wrong. Someone who's like, here's my here's my list of doctrines, everything I believe about Jesus. If you disagree, and, and, and God and Christianity and, and living life and practicing and all that, if you disagree on any point, you're not a Christian. If you aren't part of my exact group, my denomination, you are not a Christian. You don't even count as a Christian. That would be too extreme to think that everything is essential. Every belief is essential. Every doctrine, everything is essential. But then there's another totally extreme view, which is to think that none of them are. Or as long as you use the name Jesus, it doesn't matter how you define him. Like, what if I call this like little fan remote Jesus? I worship Jesus, but I'm using the name Jesus. Right? Obviously, I'm not a Christian. And, and if and if I dress up a religion that that has a bunch of, but I have a baptism in the name of Jesus, my fan remote, and and I have like Sunday gatherings and weekly worship that we sing worship songs to Jesus, by which I mean my fan remote. Like this, I would, no matter how much I look like on the periphery, like a Christian here, I'm not a real Christian because I'm worshiping a fan remote. Forgive my silly analogy. Um, so I think what happens is we don't want to have either extreme, right? Agree with me on everything or you're, or you're out of, you're out of the body of Christ or disagree with me on everything. And you're still a Christian because Christianity ultimately means nothing now. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. Interestingly enough, Mormonism now is a, is a little closer, is a little further on this side, but not fully, right? But they're, they're closer over here. But Mormonism, when Joseph Smith started it, was way over here. Joseph Smith, you know the story. He went into the woods 
and he prayed, God, which denomination is true? And God showed him, God told him that all of the the denominations are, and you could finish the sentence probably for me, abominations. Then he starts Mormonism. We're the only real ones. We're the restored church of God. We're the, we're the real Christians. Christianity was basically lost. They're all abominations, not just Christians of a different flavor, as Mormonism would probably now try to couch things. But I'm talking like, if I'm going to be Mormon, I'm going to be Joseph Smith Mormon. I'm going to be uh, Brigham Young Mormon. I'm going to be Mormon who holds to the actual original text and, and doesn't just follow the drifting of, of the, the, the liberal movements that, that tend to happen uh, when religious groups are intersecting culture and absorbing it. Um, so yeah, that he was actually over here more extreme. Me, I'm over here saying, hey man, as long as you got Jesus and you got salvation by faith, like, like I, I'm going to accept you as a Christian, even if you don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, I will think that's bad and, 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 and potentially very unhealthy for you and will cause problems most likely, but I will accept you as a Christian. You think baptism is by immersion or you think baptism is by sprinkling? I'm going to accept you as a Christian. You think baptism is necessary? I'm still going to accept you as a Christian, right? You, you, you worship on Sundays, you do hymns, you do courses. I'm going to accept you as a Christian. I have this, a lot of issues where I'm going to say, we can agree to disagree here. Maybe there's things you're doing, I think are unhealthy or unwise or unbiblical, but it doesn't mean I'm going to call you not a Christian, but Mormonism is different. And Mormons used to know this too. There's a reason why Joseph Smith identified his movement as the only real Christians, the only real followers of Jesus at the time. And it's because he knew that his movement was not like the other groups. It was totally different. He had a different understanding of who Jesus was. He had a different understanding of who God was. He had a different understanding of how salvation worked. He had a different understanding of who humans were and how they would be ultimately saved and what that meant. So let me give you some specific examples and we'll see why I'm not super strict, but I do hold to the core of Christianity. And if you disagree with the core, you can't be called a Christian. Christianity teaches that God is the eternal, always existent one, and he's always existed in his fullest, his, as God. He's always existed in his fullest state as fully God, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all those things. Mormonism teaches that God used to be a human or a humanoid like us and lived on a planet or near a star, whether it's the planet or the star is debatable, right? You, you probably know this, called Kola. And he lived a very good human life. And guess what? God had his own God that he worshiped and he served and he was a good enough person that he was able to, uh, possibly some by grace and definitely some by works, he was able to get his way into exaltation where he became a God, as in God was not always God. This is a fundamentally different God than the God of the Bible. This is like the remote analogy, right? Like you say God, but you don't mean God the way the Bible does or the way Jesus you, you don't mean Jesus the way the Bible does. Jesus is uh, seen as a biological, spiritual, let's call it spiritual biological descendant of this God who was exalted into Godhood, got his own planet, populated it with a bunch of people. But those people, he literally made babies with, with his wife or wives, more likely plural wives in heaven. If old school Mormonism, he's got lots of wives in heaven and he's made a bunch of spirit babies with them. And then we were, we were born and we're all brothers and sisters of Jesus because he's just the firstborn among us, meaning Jesus wasn't always God. Right? So we don't have John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. We have like Joseph Smith 1, 1 that would be something more like he says in the beginning were intelligences. Good luck figuring out what that is on Mormon theology. But God 
became a man. He wasn't even God yet. He God just starts out as he shows up as being anything that's interacting with the universe in some way as a man. And then he gets exalted to godhood and then he makes a bunch of spirit babies. Jesus, Satan, he's the he's a little brother of 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 Jesus. And then Jesus comes down and part of his coming down and living this human life was so he could earn his own godhood and become exalted and become a god. This is a very different theology and and of who we're worshiping. So the person I believe in is not even the Jesus of the Bible. I'm believing in the remote, effectively, a different Jesus, a different God. And the goal of salvation is different. Classic, real, like original Mormonism, OG Mormonism is that my agenda here, my, my highest goal in salvation is to become a God myself. Because this cycle of God's making gods is meant to repeat and repeat. And if I get married and sealed in the temple, and if I do all these special practices, then I become a god too. This is not only dissimilar to Christianity in the core, it's contradictory to it, meaning that by embracing LDS teaching, I'm actually required to reject Christian teaching. Another example of this is Islam, where a core doctrine of Islam is that God has no son, he's never begotten anybody, Jesus is not God. This is a core doctrine of Islam such, such that if I embrace Islam, I'm ultimately rejecting core truths about Jesus. I didn't make that happen. Joseph Smith made that happen. Muhammad made that happen. And they're doing it to many others still today. So this is why Mormonism is not Christian. Joseph Smith knew this when he started out. Mormons nowadays have softened these things and they often will try to backpedal away from these doctrines in my experience. But these are still the core doctrines and the original doctrines. Like if Joseph Smith is who he says he is, then you've got to be believing these things, right? Like Brigham's, Brigham Young's view of polygamy, for instance, like you can backtrack off of that, but go read what Brigham Young said about it. And you, you realize that you're just being a, a bad Mormon <laughs> if you do. So, um, so yeah, I hope that being that th those things, I have a playlist on Mormonism. In fact, one video on specifically on Mormonism, where I go into more detail on all this stuff, I will link it down below for you guys. Um, and hope you'll consider checking it out. It's, it's my encouragement to you, uh, ex-Mormon, but you're not you're not like in my camp, right? Is I don't need you fully in my camp. I just want you to understand at least who Jesus is, who God is, and to separate that from a lot of the Mormon stuff that literally started with Joseph Smith as he made up a false religion to try to bring people to himself. And there's so much evidence of that. I will share a playlist of videos that I really hope that you'll take a look at. And I'll put it in the, in the description, video description. Give me like 20 minutes after the stream is over and it'll be there for you. Um, let's see. Risa Faye says, for a friend, if Satan and his workers can perform miracles to mislead people, why should I believe Christians when they tell me to look at miracles or when Jesus says to look at his miracles? Um, so I, I, this is, a, this is actually a challenging question. I've thought about this myself and I'll present a couple things. Um, if we're to believe the Bible, let's think about this for a second. If we're to believe the Bible, and that's why we think Satan can perform miracles and Jesus can perform miracles, then we've already answered the question of why we should believe. If we're going to reject the Bible and say, I reject the Bible because Satan can also do miracles, so why should I believe Jesus? You've only got there by believing the Bible, so it causes a self-contradictory logic process. I reject the Bible, why? Because of this thing about the Bible that I believe. But I reject all the other stuff in the Bible. Okay, that so the, already I'm just saying at least there's a challenge here for those who hold this view. Um, 
So let me uh, let me then say I think that the biblical view is 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 pretty robust in reality though it's not a good reason to reject anything, and here's a few reasons. Um, the the Bible's not saying if miracle then God. I think the Bible's what the Bible would be saying is more like this: if miracle then something beyond humanity, a supernatural thing has happened. Now, how do I discern whether that supernatural thing is pointing me towards God or a deception from the enemy? And there are two things that come to my mind to help discern the difference. One of them is the um, the degree of the miracle. Okay, so obviously God has much more power than Satan or any sort of demonic force. God has much more powerful. He's the creator of all. So he can do things they can't do. This is exhibited specifically in the Bible in the book of Exodus when we have Moses performing miracles and Pharaoh, his magicians, this demonic thing going on with these magicians, they're able to reproduce sort of some of what what Moses can do. So he turns the rivers to blood and they're like, well, we'll turn a little a little bit of water into blood, like a small amount. Um, however they did it, you guys can debate that in the comments, right? But they're able to reproduce what looks at least like a miracle, but on a smaller, lesser scale. And then at some point, as he as they, he keeps doing things, and then Pharaoh's guys show up, like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna prove that we're just as powerful as Moses. They constantly fall short, so that God's miracles are bigger and better. Is is the, is the short end of the story? The, an example of this is raising people from the dead. Okay, God raised Jesus from the dead. This is a big enough miracle that we should look at it and say, wow, that is a God thing and not just a supernatural thing. It's God specifically. Um. Let me see if I can fix that. Sorry. We're working on the camera. I'll get the blurry issues fixed eventually. I've already ordered a new camera. It's just back ordered. Um, so the, uh, the one of the issues is the degree of the miracles. Okay. So when you look at the, the, the Bible and you look at the types of things that God does, yeah, they're, they're big. It's big scale to when he's talking about proving himself globally to people or nationally to people. Another thing is you actually test it with scripture. Now, this might sound circular to people. Okay. I don't think it is circular. So let me explain that in a minute. But Testing with scripture. Um, this is definitely found in the Bible where God specifically says, like, here's the revelation I've brought to you. Now, if someone else comes, even if they give a prophecy, even if they do something amazing, but it contradicts what I've already said to you, you don't listen to them. They're a false leader. They're a false prophet, false miracle worker. So that is scripture rises up as the clear revelation of God that I can use to evaluate future miracles. Now, miracles did help substantiate that it was God. But they were big miracles. They weren't some little penny, penny ante stuff. Is it penny ante? Penny ante, that's the phrase. It's, it's a gambling phrase. I never realized that before. Penny ante. Like you're, yeah. Just, just occurred to me. So it's not like that. God did these big, massive things to demonstrate who he, who he was. And now he's like, and along with that, I gave you information. Now that information, that revelation of scripture, it takes precedence over someone else coming and doing some little thing here and there. Don't be led astray by it. Jesus warned about this too. He goes, there are people who bring false signs and wonders and they try to lead people away in my name. Don't listen to them because when I come, it, it, they, they're not me. They're false Christs. When I return, everyone will see it. Everyone will know. You won't need anybody to be like, hey, it's Jesus. He's over there. No, no. Y'all going to know so that I don't have to follow those people. Um, and one of the miracles that big miracle that's verified this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think if you work that stuff out, I, I hope you find it helpful. And yeah. Number nine, Mary Young or Marie Young says, why did God allow my cat to be attacked by a dog? If he could have stopped it, we are heartbroken. 
Marie, um, okay, I I have cats too, um, and I love my pets very deeply. Okay, and we've we've we lost a cat, you know, a few years ago, and that was like that just like really hurt our heart. Okay, so I'm not going to compare it to losing a child. I think that's that that's that's silly, but it's very painful and sticks with you. You know, so part of me wants to wants to just bring you comfort and bring you encouragement and say oh let god be your comfort let god be the one you lean on let god be the one that you trust because whatever happened you can at least trust that god is good um i want to bring that to you and another part of me responds and is like who do you think i am like i like i would know why a dog attacked your cat like how would i know this god knows stuff but i don't know i don't know your cat and the dog in this situation and i have no clue I can't hardly tell why I have like back pain <laughs> and what God's doing with that. But it doesn't discourage me. You know why? Because I don't expect to know why God allows everything. This is the big freedoms. You shouldn't expect to be able to, to read the mind of God and explain why everything happens in this world. Or we, we have the mind of Christ, but not in a reading God's mind, but in a being led in the in the in the good desires of Christ so that we might honor God in our lives. But I don't know how to read God's mind. I don't know what what is happening in any particular situation. And, and here's the good news. You don't either. Marie, I don't know why that happened, but you don't either, and you shouldn't expect to. God can be the one who helps you through it. But looking and expecting him to explain why he allowed it is just stepping out of what's reality for us as humans. I don't know why. It's not a fair question for me to ask and then expect a real answer to. It is fair for me to say, I'm bothered. It hurts. Um, I wish I knew why. But it's just not fair for me to say, like, I expect to be told why this happened. As if God has to run what he does and allows and doesn't allow through our approval. Like, I'm like I'm here. I'm the, I'm the gatekeeper God of what you do and you have to... You have to get my approval before you can do it. Or after you do it, you have to explain it to me so I can be happy with it. Like, I think that that's just, that's just, we're speaking out of a place of grief and anguish in our hearts. And it's, and it's, it's a dangerous time when you're grieving and when you're hurting, it is not the time you're thinking the clearest. So I say, don't worry about trying to answer that question. Seek the Lord, trust in God, seek the comfort that God can provide, table those questions you don't know the answer. You're not going to, unless God does some incredible revelation for you. He doesn't usually do for people. But don't let your hurt lead you to an unhealthy place. That's always a danger for us as humans. I really hope that yeah, it gives you some help. I wish I could help more. Uh, number 10, truth says, did Jesus know he was only going to die for three days and it wouldn't actually be for eternity? And why did the father require a sacrifice if it wasn't for eternity? Well, you got two questions. Sneaky. So did Jesus know it was only for three days and it wouldn't actually be for eternity? Absolutely he did. Because he said multiple times in the Gospels, um, the Son of Man will be will, will be delivered over to the hands of Gentiles and they will uh, scourge him and crucify him, kill him, and three days later he will rise. So he predicted his death and his resurrection multiple times and then assures us that that's uh, consistent with the scriptures as well, that he had to rise on the third day. Of course he was going to rise on the third day and, and the road to Emmaus and all that stuff, if you guys are familiar with it. So yeah, Jesus absolutely knew. Um, but then your your next question is, why did the father require a sacrifice if it wasn't for eternity? Um, this I, I'm going to direct you guys to a video I did on the doctrine of, and this is the name of the doctrine, the fancy name, penal, like penalty, P-E-N-A-L, penal 
substitutionary atonement. That doctrine uh, deals with these types of questions. Why does Jesus's temporary death, how could that lead to forgiveness for an eternal, what would be an unending punishment for others? And I, I go through a number of answers to this question. I'll give you one to think about, and I'll link the video below where I'm going to, I really hope you guys will check it out. Um, I will link that below again. Just give me a few minutes after the stream is over. So one reason why, maybe I'll give you a couple, uh, Jesus's temporary suffering could pay and, and absolve us of what would be an unending uh, suffer, suffering is what we could do is we could compare this to like debtor's prison. So in debtor's prison was a real thing back at the time. They understood this. If you owed somebody a lot of money, you could go to, to jail and you would be working in the jail, uh, hoping to pay off eventually what you owed. And your time in jail would be depending upon how much money you owe. Now, imagine if you go to jail and you owe a billion dollars, it's like you're never getting out. Now, imagine if while you're in jail, you keep incurring more debt because you haven't stopped sinning against God. So you continue to incur more debt. You're never going to pay this debt off. There's just nothing you can do to pay it off. You don't have any money to pay it off with, and you're actually incurring more debt faster than you're working for money to pay off the debt you've already got. Like that's this, the hypothetical scenario, okay? Then Jesus shows up and he's this, he's the super rich guy. And he's like, oh, you owe a billion dollars, right? I will go to jail for you. And there I will be in, for three days, I will be in that jail. And on, on, on the, on, on the, in the time I'm there, I will pay off the debt in full, a billion dollars because he has that much money. So he pays off the full debt and they release him from the jail and you go, Hey, how come I was going to be in there forever, but you were only in there for three days. And he looks at you and says, because I paid the debt and you never, never would. I think that's a piece of understanding this, why Jesus could have a momentary sacrifice that pays something that I could never pay long-term because I didn't have the collateral. I don't have the righteousness. Let's take the money and apply it to what really matters here. I don't have the righteousness. And all I do is continue to add sin to my, to my issues, uh, to my debt. And so no matter how much time I'm, I'm here dealing with my, in my debtor's prison, hell, so to speak, I'm not going to be able to pay this off. And so Jesus was able to pay it off, um, right away. And so the three days may have been more about the, the symbolism of, um, of, and not about how long it took him to pay the debt, his death paid the debt. But he's dead for three days to prove he's actually dead, to give them a chance to bury him, to, to let the histor historical case be built here for the resurrection of Christ. Um, also to fill, fulfill the Old Testament scriptures that talk about three days and stuff like that. Also, um, uh, because Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, it says in First Peter. And so it get, Jesus was actually doing things during that time, spiritually. There's my answers on that one. I hope it helps. Uh, Eleven. Larry says, what proof is there that Jesus really existed? And if the gospels uh, were written by man, how do you prove it was inspired by God and not a man, not a man? All right. So Larry, what proof is there that Jesus really existed? I'm glad you asked, man. Um, Larry, here's, I have a video on this with uh, Dr. Mike Lycona. He's a historian and he, he's a Christian too, but, but uh, he's a pretty sober minded historian. In fact, I think he doesn't give enough credit to the evidence. Sometimes he has a habit to understate things, which a lot of scholars do. But at any rate, I interviewed him on the topic of Jesus mythicism. So for those atheists that are still listening, first off, I'm grateful that you're listening. Um, and uh, I know that you've heard bad things about me, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> um, so what I want to say is this, is in atheist communities, it tends to be, or, or you know, circles, it tends to be a popular belief that Jesus didn't exist. But this is not entertained on any level amongst historians 
except for like a couple. You got like Robert Price and you got Richard Carrier. And um, I think it's even like Bart Ehrman, who I would say is not a great source for, for many things related to the Bible and Christianity, unfortunately. Um, not because he's wrong on everything he says, but because of the way it's skewed. At any rate, even this guy, who's an atheist agnostic, he says that there's no teaching professor, no like, in other words, someone who's entrusted with teaching others that's in a university anywhere in the world that he's aware of who actually believes that Jesus didn't exist. Jesus mythicism, in his opinion, is is a historical joke. And most historians don't even want to engage with mythicists about Jesus because it's so bad. It's like engaging, this is not my words, these are their words, with flat earthers um, on the topic of the science around the earth. There, A lot of people just go, I don't even want to talk about it because they feel like it's just such a bad, un, unscientific claim. And the same is true of historians about Jesus. Um, it's one of the most certain facts of history, according to historians, that Jesus did die and rise again. Now, what, or not die and rise again, but that Jesus did live and suffer crucifixion under Pontius Pilate in particular. You can name other things that historians, like a consensus of historians agree on. Now, that's not easy to get a consensus. That's like 90 plus percent or 95 plus percent. So consensus of historians that would say things like, Jesus uh, really walked the earth. He really was a Jewish man who was at least believed to do exorcisms and miracles, that he really did have 12 disciples, that he really uh, did think, this is trippy, the consensus on this, that he really thought that he was God's eschatological agent. That's the term they like to use. But basically that he was bringing, he was bringing out the fulfillment of prophecy and he was the one to kind of like wrap up what God has promised Israel. Um, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate because of the claims related to this and that he was buried and that, and, and now you don't get consensus. You get more like 70 something percent that his tomb was actually found empty. So, like shortly thereafter and that he, and here's where I think you get back to consensus that he was, um, that many of his disciples and followers believed that they saw Jesus actually appear to him after his death in both individual and then some of them in group experiences. Now, that's a lot of information in history. There's other stuff, too, I could add, like James, that one of his followers after his death was James, who was a brother of Jesus. That's an important case of evidence for the genuineness of, of, of it. Um, that Paul, who was formerly a persecutor of the church, came to be a follower of Christ because he believed he encountered the risen Christ. Um, that's an actual important historical claim. There's all sorts of other stuff, too, we can say. So this is, this is me just summarizing um, what's largely accepted here amongst historians. Now, histories, the historians are always changing, the field's shifting. Somebody writes a paper and it gets a lot of press or they write a book and then the, and then the field kind of shifts one way or the other. But I'll say this, even if some of those details are, are stop being consensus, even, even though there's still be majority for sure, um, what we have here is a large base of sort of really reliable historical information about Jesus, even if you didn't believe the Bible was inspired. That's significant. That's some stuff I'd like you to look. I'll, I'll link below the discussion I have with Mike Lacona about mythicism, and he'll talk about it. And he has quotes from lots of scholars that he can share with you, and you can follow this up with your own research. Um, the next thing, though, you said is, uh, if the Gospels were written by man, how do you prove it was inspired by God and not by man? Um, I think I go to a few things for the New Testament. One is I demonstrate uh, for really the Bible in its inspiration. Um, uh, I like the prophetic arguments, arguments from prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. So I have in my evidence for the Bible series, I go through a lot of prophetic evidence and I'm sure 
I get some details wrong. Like I'm sure there's some mistakes there, but I think that you will see that the case for the inspiration of scripture through prophecy is actually very strong. And I talk about some of those things throughout in that series. I'll link it below as well. Evidence for the Bible playlist. I will put that in the description. And um, another thing we can look at then is, so because if God really prophesied and it was really fulfilled, you can show it was, it was predicted before it happened. It's clear enough that you can say this was the fulfillment and it happened later and it wasn't just fulfilled by someone trying to make it happen. And the greatest of this is Jesus. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of prophecy. And you can historically assure that he did so many of these things. Um, it wasn't just written. I know this is this is the reaction. Well, but the New Testament authors just wrote it that way because they wanted to make it look like he fulfilled prophecy. And all I'm saying is like, you're way behind the curve on this. If you think that it is exactly the things that are most assuredly historical about Jesus that are the things that are prophetically connected to the to the Old Testament scripture, meaning that you don't need to believe the Bible's inspired to get there. You can actually use it as evidence the other way around. Um, yeah, so there, there's there's a reason there. And the resurrection of Christ, obviously, I think is is a significant piece in the puzzle. I think that the interconnectedness of the Old and New Testaments shows that it's not of human origin. The, the the stories of Jesus, look at my Mark series going verse by verse through Mark, you will see so many intricate connections and you're like, look, either Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, all these guys are brilliant and they're somehow weaving the Old Testament narrative into this incredible picture of Jesus or it's just naturally that way. Okay, I think that this is a piece in the, in the positive column for inspiration of scripture. And um, yeah, anyway, there's some things to think about. I'll link some stuff down below. Okay, number 12. Antonio Sandoval says, why would God require prayer for what he knows he should heal? Okay. Like say, say I have cancer and God, and I'm in a, which, which I don't to my knowledge. <laughs> and, uh, and I, um, and I'm like, God, let's say God, God should heal this in your opinion. God should heal me. And why would he require prayer for that? Um, uh, I think that this may betray a perspective of God that treats him a little bit more like a vending machine, um, like a, um, like a fruit tree, right? Like I go up, I, I plant it, I water it, like, give me the fruit. Like, it's just something you should do. Or we often think of God in this view, like a parent. Um, why would I make my kid ask for dinner when I know I should just feed them dinner? So like, why would you make them ask even more? Why would you make them ask to go to the doctor if they've just been gravely injured? We're like, well, did you ask me? And then I'll take you to the doctor. And sometimes viewing God as though he's a giant cosmic parent and as though all humans are his beloved children, not that we're not beloved, but beloved children, that can skew our evaluation of God and what he does. Because all of a sudden, I expect God to serve me the way that a, a parent serves a child. I also expect that my relationship with God as his beloved child is secured regardless of whatever I believe or however I behave and all that kind of stuff. And this is, this is not biblical. We're actually a people in rebellion against God. We're in a world that's in rebellion against God. That's the biblical view. So we can't just take this God as a father. Like he, this is why in scripture, he adopts us as his children. He adopts us and we're still in the midst of a fallen world. We're still in the midst of difficulties. Um, but he wouldn't have to adopt us if we were just automatically his children. So yeah, popular American view, popular sort of, um, 
big city view of God is that like everyone's God's child. And like, well, that's probably a bad term actually to use for that. Everyone can become God's child. He wants them to be his children, but you get adopted. But even then you're not, a, you're not like a little child. You're, and, and even if you are a child, you're not the one for long, right? Like you're meant to grow up and learn and, and be educated and suffering is part of that actually. So why would God require prayer for what he knows he should heal? I think should heal is an assumption we're placing on God that treats him like the, the father who's feeding his child, the father who's going to take his child to the hospital and all this, instead of as God of all creation, he has a much broader responsibility. Uh, relationship with us than just being like a father figure for a little child. Like e even if I had a son and you know, he's in a, I treat him as an adult differently than as a child as well. So there's that aspect. Okay. But why doesn't God, why does God even make me ask for anything when he heals? Okay. Let's, let's ignore the word should for a second here in, in your question and just say, why does God make me do anything? Pray at all. If he's in, if he wants to heal me here again, I want to remember that God is not my vending machine. I have a relationship with God. And one of the greatest things you can do is to learn to have faith and trust in God. And prayer is a encapsulated moment of exactly that. I'm trusting in God and I am appealing to God and I'm relating to God. And so this is a good and worthwhile thing. Imagine if imagine if my wife just anticipated all of my needs and I never had to talk to her. Um, that would hurt the relationship, actually. So there's an element where this would damage the relationship. I I, I think it's just um, people who are like, I don't see why I have to ask God for things. If he wants to, if, if you're just going to give them to me when I ask him, I just give it to me. Now. This is a way of saying, God, this is how much I value my relationship with you. None. I don't even want to ask. Can you just give me things without me asking? <laughs> I think it's a problem. All right, 13. Um... Donovan B says, are there any good rules of thumb for atheists attending a church service for the purposes of learning, assuming they have no intention of conversion? Is this considered rude or invasive? Um, no, most churches would be really happy to, to have an atheist at a church service to go there, to learn, to, to, to grow. Now they have no intention of converting. Okay. Maybe you don't intend to convert, but you, do you at least intend to learn and grow? Um, I think the rule of thumb would be, uh, just, I'm just being straight with you. You can come as someone who's like, I'm here looking in the window and watching what you guys are doing. Um, and if there's an appropriate place in a small group or in a setting, I might ask some questions or maybe I'll provide some pushback if I feel like this is an okay social environment for that. But it's a different thing for some people to go and be like, I'm just here to learn and ask questions. Like, And then they come out with a lot of like, they're actually there to create disruptions and to cause harm to the other people because... The pastor is like thinking, oh, I'm so glad this atheist is here um, or this non-Christian is here. Um, but if I find that they're here insincerely and they really, they're like, let's say I'm here with my girlfriend. She's dragging me to church. Fine, I'll go to church. But you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deconvert as many people as I can and, and I'm going to assert myself here. Then you would be see as someone, seen as rightly as someone who's come to cause spiritual harm to others around you. You can't act like the Christians are going to pretend like we're neutral, like Christianity, maybe true, maybe false. Like, come and let's just have a discussion. Like, obviously, if they think you're not open and you're just disrupting, I'm not saying you're doing those things, but somebody would, right? You know, you, you have a friend who would, you know, somebody who would do that. So that would obviously be, I think, inappropriate. Um, uh, just like if I went to an atheist convention myself, 
um, there would be an appropriate and inappropriate way for me to speak up and I would be looking for the, the right opportunity to share things. So I, I think that, that that can be there. You can't really consider yourself part of the fellowship of the church because the fellowship of the church is based around Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean you aren't welcome there and they, they don't want you to come and want you to, to hear things um, and ask questions even, hopefully. Yeah. Let's go to 14. Kelly Alvey says, isn't it egotistical for God to ask us to worship him? Um, this question was posed by your atheist brother, it says. Okay, so Kelly, here's the thing. Um, I think egotistical implies that you have an inflated ego, right? Like, oh, you've just, you're asking too much. But there are, there are things where you ask others to do something for you that it's not egotistical. It's totally appropriate. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say that you, um, you, you work, you're, you're going to work and you have a boss there and you're doing something and the boss interrupts you and says, Hey, you know what? From now on, when you do that, I want you to ask me first. Um, I've got a lot of things going on. Like this is just, there's reasons I want you to ask me before you ever do this kind of thing in the future. Is that egotistical? Not if it's actually in their purview as your boss, they know things, they understand things. It's, it's fine. What about, is this egotistical? Is it egotistical when parents have like a little baby and they're trying to teach them to speak and they're trying to get them to say, daddy, say, daddy, dada, say, say, dada, say, mommy. Is that egotistical? Like, why is it that of all the words you're going to teach your kids, you want to teach them your call name, right? You want to teach them to say mommy and daddy. What about this? Your kid wants to go to bed. And you make them walk across the room, hug and kiss you goodnight and tell you that they love you. And they hug and kiss you. And then they start, they walk away and you're like, ah, what'd you forget? And they go, I love you. Is that egotistical? No, but why is it not? Because you have the appropriate relationship. You're the parent, they're the child. It would be weird if someone else did that. The teacher in their school goes, before everyone leaves, you must tell me you love me. Well, that's egotistical, but you're not the parent. That's why it's egotistical. God is God almighty. If God's, God's like, you should worship me just like a parent goes, you should, you should tell me you love me. You should worship God because he's actually worthy. It would be dishonest. It would be a lie if God was to say, it doesn't matter if you worship me. I'm not actually worthy of worship. Don't worry about it. It would be dishonest and it would also be unhealthy for us. Just like if you, if you don't make your kids express love to you as a parent, that's actually unhealthy for them. You think you're being nice and kind of them, but it's actually hurting them. In the same respect here is God actually is worthy of worship. So when God um, desires, requires worship, it is for our benefit, for our good, and he's completely worthy. It's entirely right. It's it's not that much different than a parent saying, I'm going to teach my kid to to love me. And, and because God's triune, there's, a, there's even a selflessness in this, right? Because... And this is actually how, this isn't just me saying this, the Bible does this too. So the, 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 the father glorifies the son. Jesus says like, glorify me with the glory I have before you, with you before the world was in John 17, the son glorifies the father. He's bringing glory to the father. He says, father, I have glorified you on this earth. And the Holy spirit, he points to, to Jesus, to the son. Jesus is, the, is our conduit for God. So really, it's like the father is 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 more like the think of it like this: the family. Uh, when the dad says, "Hey, give your mom a hug and treat her with respect," and the mom says, "Hey, treat your dad res- with respect and give him a hug," 
there's a selflessness here that's healthy for all. There's a sense in which God is triune and thereby uh, drawing with the Father, drawing worship to the Son, the Son towards the Father, that kind of thing. Another aspect that's in there. Let's go to 15. Uh, Sankar 13 says, the Bible says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why would God, knowing that we will always be sinful when we are in flesh, expect perfection? I think the problem here is the word perfect does not mean as strictly what we're thinking uh, in, in, in like Greek, in the Bible. The word perfect, it can mean complete. It can mean whole and mature, right? Um, but we, we usually use the word perfect. And what we're thinking is, if you're going to be perfect as God is perfect, you're saying like total, utter holiness in every aspect of my thinking and my behavior. And um, I, I think that we're, we're looking at mo- growing into the goodness and the holiness of God is, is the idea here. So I, that's my, my understanding. Maybe I'm wrong on that. That's my understanding of, of that word and how it's used. The word perfect, my, in my opinion, may not be a good English translation for that term. Uh, we see it in other places in scripture too. The, the word perfect. Sometimes it's just translated mature. Right? So there's, there's some sort of growth and understanding and wisdom, um, your maturity that you have that will reflect like God's, God's attitude about things. Maybe, maybe that's a better way to put it. So I'll, I'll read your question again, make sure I understood it right. The Bible says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, right? That's the Sermon on the Mount. Why would God, knowing that we will always be sinful when we are in flesh, expect perfection? There's another answer to this question too, though, um, that, that it doesn't hinge on the meaning of the word perfect. Okay. It hinges on the idea that Jesus is revealing a standard in Matthew six, five, six, and seven, um, he is revealing a standard that is unreachable by humans. That is true. Even, even though the word perfect I, maybe maybe is mistranslated there, or, or, or at least we're misunderstanding it, if I'm right about that. But, um, but Jesus is revealing a standard that we can't reach in Matthew. And this is deliberate, I think. He's trying to say, look, you can't even look with lust. You can't hate in your heart. You, you, you give away what you have to serve and bless and help others. You return persecution with prayer. You return hate with love. You return wounds with kindness, uh, like all this stuff. And, and then like, yeah, that, then you'll be, then you'll be like God. Then you'll, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll be doing what's required of you because what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount is both God's requirement and He's describing the one who will fulfill the requirement, which is himself. Jesus is describing himself, not you, ultimately. He lays out all these amazing, deep, high calling issues, right? Love and self-sacrifice and giving and being merciful and being humble and, and uh, all this stuff. As, he's, as you're reading Matthew 5, 6, 7, think this is what Jesus actually does that nobody else does. He does it on my behalf. So he comes and he reminds us of the requirement. Then he lives a life that fulfills the requirement. Then we believe in God and we fulfill the requirement. How? By Jesus's righteousness, not our own. So I hope that helps that we don't want to diminish the call of God. You better be totally holy. We want to use that to point to Jesus, the only one who was totally holy and realize that when you believe in him, you receive his holiness. You're clothed in Christ's righteousness, not your own. Uh, number 16. Inno West says, how can you believe in a storybook referring to the Bible? This was actually a question I faced several times when I stayed in Germany for a while. Um, yeah, so 
this is a challenging thing because the I'm the kind of person who in casual conversation responds to the Bible by going, this storybook is uh, hugely ignorant about the nature of the Bible, like hugely ignorant about it. If they just think it's a storybook. The problem though is they're also confident in their ignorance about it. So they, they're not aware that there's a, a great deal of historical verification for the Bible, that sort of thing. I've encountered people like this when, when you have a lot of confidence coupled with a super simplistic kind of perspective of, of say scripture or Christianity like that, where it's a storybook. That's your analysis of scripture. Um, where then I go, well, actually, there's a lot of historical evidence to support the scripture is that I often see the walls just go right up. Like as soon as I start to say, well, actually, there's a lot of good historical evidence. We have evidence about Jesus. We have evidence about events of the Old Testament, specific kings that are mentioned in the Bible, some of the specific locations, the geography of Israel that we've been able to look at really confirms what we read about in the Gospels. Like the the, the Gospels themselves are considered, uh, most scholars think of them as Greco-Roman biography, not storybook, but biography, not fantasy, not some kind of like... Um, mythological literature but biography that's interesting that historians and you know scholars of the new testament say that like when you start saying these things are true but but i often find the walls just go up because what happens is when someone feels really confident and they say something kind of silly as soon as you challenge them they become embarrassed and defensive so maybe the best thing to do is ask questions start with questions like oh what do you mean by that this keeps them talking instead of you you're not going to embarrass them they're the one talking, right? Let them talk. The Bible is just a storybook. What do you mean by that? First question. Let them answer the question. After they've answered it and you understand what they mean by storybook, you might actually have a new question. Maybe they didn't even mean what it sounded like. Um, then you can ask another follow-up question like, how did you come to that conclusion? Or like, what convinced you of that? Another great question. Letting them talk and you are just gathering data and info and you're figuring out what's important, what's worth ignoring, what's worth sharing and talking about and addressing. And you will learn, you'll be informed by listening carefully to what they say on how to answer next. That's my advice. Uh, Teresia says, does God already know what choices we will make? Does he just know the outcome of every single option? Or are there like two or slash a couple possible options for everyone? If the first, what's the point? Um, okay. I believe that God knows both of those things. Actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't set, set them as two options that are separate. I think God knows what choices we will make. I think he also knows, um, what the outcome of every option would have been. So he knows that I will choose to grab this cable and wiggle it in front of you, but he also knows I had the option of grabbing this thumb drive and holding it up. And, and he actually knows that I did, I did both, but I have an option here. I could do this. I could do that. So he knows what would happen had I done this and what would happen had I done that. I think God knows that. Um, there's evidence this, of this in, um, specifically, I mean, it's God's omniscient, so he knows, but there's evidence of this in, um, in the story of David, when he flees to a city and he inquires of the Lord and he goes, Hey, uh, are the armies going to come to the city? Uh, and if they do, will the people, and I stay in the city, will the people deliver me over to these, to this army? And God's like, yes, it, when they come, if you're here, they will deliver you over. So this is a possible outcome of a decision he never makes. He doesn't stay. So that's uh, evidence that God, God knew what would have happened had someone made different choices than they ended up making. But God also knows, knows the choices you will make and prophecy wouldn't function in scripture if God didn't know the choices you would make. Um, so 
how do we then deal with your question? What's the point? What's the point in me making choices if God already knows all the choices I'll make? And here's where I heard, um, I think it was William Lane Craig I heard make this observation. I thought it was really important. I try to remember it. The difference between certainty and necessity. Certainty and necessity. God knows certainly what you will do. That doesn't mean that's what you had to do. It was certain, but it wasn't necessary. Because he knows what you will do, he can plan ahead. Um, we, we do this in small ways in our lives all the time. I know that things about my wife, like my wife knows that if she made a plate of chocolate chip cookies, you know, still warm, soft in the middle, nice and crunchy on the outside, just the cheap store-bought stuff. I don't need nothing fancy. Then she knows, mouth watering, just thinking about them chocolate chip cookies. I haven't had chocolate chip cookies in forever. Um, she knows I'm going to eat them. She knows for certain I will eat them. Does that mean I have to eat them? No. And you might say, well, what's the point in you even choosing them then? Well, like I'm still in control at least. I mean, she might know what I'm going to do, but that's just because she knows me really well. But like, I still, I want to make the choice and enjoy the cookie. In a sense, I, I want to say like, you make choices all this for all the same reasons you ever would, just because God knows and is able to plan accordingly doesn't remove your ability to make those choices. It's completely irrelevant. Um, God knowing what you'll do shouldn't affect your, your sense of the value of your choices. God obviously thinks your choices are valuable. He lets you live out the results of those choices. Um, so yeah, just a confusion between what's known, what's certain versus what's necessary. They're not the same. Um, Stefan the Pelted says, I have been hearing atheists and Muslims saying our God Yahweh was originally a storm God. Is it proven archaeologically? Any implications on our faith? Any thoughts on that? You know what I'm going to do is I'll link another, yet another video I'll link below, but this is on your exact question. Um, uh, I know that Inspiring Philosophy, um, another YouTube channel, another Christian YouTuber, has a video on this exact question. He can share the answer much better than I could. I will say this, Stefan, um, I'll link it below as soon as the stream's over. But this type of thing comes out all the time. You always hear this sort of thing. Um, it sounds good and convincing right away. When you do a little bit of research, this sort of thing falls apart. Um, that it, I've, I've seen it happen hundred hundred times in my life. Or some claim about the Bible, like, oh, well, it's just, the Bible's just copying the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, you know, the, the, the whole like creation from the, from the ancient, you know, Near Eastern stories of how creation is just copying those things. And then you look into it in detail and you go, yeah, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> so um, that's what you need is a detailed look. I'll link a video below that will answer it for you. Let's go to 19. The different theologies like cessationism and continuationism can be a stumbling block for unbelievers and cause confusion. How can this be explained to them? I think, Lynn, you got to point them to people who are like, hey, continuation is here. Cessation is here. We still worship the same Jesus. We still are followers of Christ. We're still all saved. I think a non-believer can become a believer and never even figure out what they think about the gifts of the spirit. Cessation, continuation, somewhere in the middle. They don't know. That's totally okay. These are not things that Christians have to have strong convictions on. They can just go, I don't know. So focus them on the core and know that Christians by and large are aware of this too. They don't, like I would not divide with people over these issues. And it's it's kind of like saying, hey, let's, forgive this lame analogy, 
Be part of my motorcycle club. We all believe motorcycles are fun and like to ride them, right? Some people believe Harleys are the best. Some people think that Honda makes the best motorcycles. Other people like Kawasaki. Kawa Kawasaki? Yeah, the Ninja. I, was, I had a motorcycle many years ago. Um, and, you know, they debate over which motorcycles are best, but they all have the motorcycle thing in common. Christianity is like this. Jesus is, in a sense, the, the core that we all agree on. We all, we all enjoy and, and commit to and worship and serve and trust in Christ, his death and resurrection. Some of the side issues, that they matter, okay? They're not unimportant, but they're not things that, that should cause an unbeliever to stumble. Um, 20 Josh Kimmy says, what about other books like the Vedic texts that are older than the gospels? Should older equal more accurate or true? Well, Josh, um, Josh Kimmy, I think I would want to hear someone make a case for that. Um, well, if it's an older text, then that religion is more likely true. Like that, that seems to do a couple things for one. We're literally choosing to believe whatever's the oldest thing we can find. That's like scary to me, like genuinely scary. What if the oldest thing you can find just happens to be like, stab your parents with a fork, jump around on Tuesdays and only eat potatoes. And then you have like the potato religion, right? Where you're doing all those things, the, the fork potato jumping religion. And just because it's old, like this seems hugely reckless. It also would limit god revealing things in the future to people because you would just be like well god god can't currently speak he can't reveal anything to us right now we have to literally take the most the oldest document we can find it would also mean that <laughs> catch this that if you found a document older than the last one you'd have to change religions <laughs> you were believing this religion forever because it was the oldest and then you find a document that's older and it's like no not the potato religion we have the flicking boogers at your grandmother religion and, and you, because you find this uh, forgive me for coming with dumb youth pastor style analogies here you um you 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 change and you have to flick boogers at your grandma now because it's older it's an older religion and then when you find an even older one and they're doing an archaeological dig in the middle of africa somewhere and you're like look what i have uncovered you won't believe what we have to do with our dirty socks and, and like this is just monumentally silly obviously I care if, an, if religion's brand new or old. I care. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but it can't be the deciding factor. I want to see that religion corresponds with reality. I want to see that there's some sort of veracity to the claims that they're making. I want to see that Christianity is true through prophecy, through miracles, through testimonies, through my own personal experience, which at least matters to me, okay? My experience with God, how he's changed my life, that matters a lot to me. I know it won't convince a skeptic for the most part because they don't know me, right? And they hear different people saying, making claims all the time. Well, well, essential oils changed my life, right? Like I'm not, I'm not trying to base your conversion on, on, on my story, but it certainly matters to me that Jesus changed my life radically, uh, and powerfully. And God has ministered to me in some ways that are very real. So those things seem to be more relevant to me. Um, in reality, uh, the way the Bible presents things is that humanity uh, from the time of Adam and Eve would have known that there was one God. That then they fell and started worshiping the creature. This is the the timeline of history condensed. Okay, they they fell and they started worshiping creatures and, and and stuff. And these other false gods, lesser gods, were created. So that by the time we have Abraham being selected, 
there, there's all this polytheism, which was not the initial state of things, but the secondary state of things. Initially, people would have known there was one God. And then God chooses Abraham to reveal that he is the God who was the ancient one. So the Bible is presenting God as the ancient truth, not as some new truth. The text isn't maybe the oldest written thing in the world, but the truth is is, is old. And then, if, then, of course, we get to, you know, the New Testament and all the different teachings of Scripture. So the Bible does offer a, a reasonable account of the other religions that do exist in the world. And when you compare polytheism, like logically speaking, to monotheism, it, there's no there's no competition. Yeah, I guess that's a discussion for another time. Um, bonus question from Kevin Jensen, who says, why is he still babbling and not demonstrating his God exists. Just demonstrate it. Tell me right now in the comment section. No, I don't want to watch a video. No, I'm not going to read an article you linked me to. I just have to know it in the comment section right now. Every Christian has to start completely from scratch, proving God exists. No matter what they say in the, in, <laughs> online, they got to start over and prove God exists right now in the comment section. Don't link me to anything. I'm not reading that garbage. I've already read everything. I already know everything. I'm just summarizing many different atheist conversations I've had online. Um, so... There, okay, I, I've given different evidence for God. Um, I, I'll share some videos down in, in the video description. We talk about things like the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. I talk about things like prophe fulfilled prophecy as evidence not only that God exists, but that he's the God of the Bible. Um, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I have videos where I've dealt with this stuff. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours putting them together for you. Um, so Kevin, that stuff is there. I hope you'll take a look at it. But it's not just me. It's not just, it's not like Mike Winger is like the only guy out here doing this stuff. I'm learning from the work of others and it's been going on forever. You could look up William Paley's information on how to prove God exists. And it's still really solid and really valid and probably free online, by the way. Um, just very old. So there's tons of evidence for God in the world. And we could look at arguments like, um, well, like I said, the Kalam cosmological argument, that's a very powerful argument for God's existence. It's the universe... You know, everything that has a beginning has a cause, and the universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Then you do an analysis of what would cause the universe. Well, the universe is like time, space, matter, energy. So whatever created the universe would be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and powerful enough to not require physical energy, but be able to create all this physical energy. This does fit the description of a monotheistic God like that we, we have in Christianity. The evidence for the resurrection is there. We argue, we can argue from well-established historical facts to the most reasonable conclusion that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There's real evidence for God and specifically for Jesus. If, if you um, if you already grant that there's at least potentially a God, then it's, you, you would find that even more persuasive evidence for Christianity in particular. There's other evidence for God. There's, there's arguments from like the design argument, uh, teleology, both biology, as well as the teleology of the universe. So we have things like the, the fine-tuning of the universe, which I've talked about um, even in recent videos, and people respond with the puddle analogy, which which is really doesn't doesn't even understand, I think, the fine-tuning argument, in my opinion. Um, and there's a variety of puddle analogies or whatever, different, different ways of using it. But the basic idea is that the universe itself was um, is so intricately balanced in all of its constants and quantities, like, say, the amount of dark matter, the, um, the, the rate of expansion, the, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the force of gravity, these things are so finely balanced on a razor's edge that it, it doesn't really it doesn't really look like it's an accident. And that it would be required to be like that for there to be a life-permitting universe. 
You get what this means? This does, and people, well, life will fit whatever universe it finds itself in. Well, no, but the whole argument is saying that's not the case. That's what the science indicates is no, 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 no. You, you change gravity a little bit. You don't even get planets, let alone life. You, you change the nuclear force a little bit. Like you're not even going to get water. Like you're not going to get life. Um, you, you, you tweak these things and you don't get any life. There's no life to speak of at all. It's so finely tuned that the response by and large from skeptics that I've seen online, uh, in, at least in the, in the past, like maybe 10 years ago, they're, they're moving away from this now, I think. But the response that was super popular was the multiverse theory. Well, there's, there's many universes <laughs> to, to, to come up with. Let's say I roll like a trillion sided die and it has to land on just the right number. That's the universe we live in. It's just the right settings for us to get life. And they go, yes, well, I'm just going to make a trillion universes. And that way, sure, one of them lands on the right number because we have a trillion tries. But there's no evidence for the multiverse. Um, it's a completely like it's a theory that simply acknowledges how unlikely a life permitting universe is, which is way more than one to a trillion, um, way less likely than one to a trillion. But uh, but but has no evidence to support it. The multiverse theory is sort of a backhanded way of admitting how good the fine tuning argument is, in my opinion. So there's things like that. Or we could look at other other arguments for God's existence, like the argument for mathematics or the argument from the human soul. Um, the, there's other arguments as well. These are what I'm suggesting here, Kevin, is there is a plethora. I, I'll use that word with great joy right now. There is a plethora of really well thought out heavily researched and free to find online defenses of the existence of God. And one of the most common things I hear amongst atheist communities, especially, and, and some agnostics as well, is that there is zero evidence for God there. And all the arguments are horrible. Sure. You have arguments. They're all just terrible. What I'm suggesting is go a layer deeper in your studies, because what you will find is the quick dismissals of these, of these arguments are too quick. Um, People just miss the fine-tuning argument or ar arguments, even even things like the um, the ontological argument, which at, at first glance, you're like, that doesn't sound like a solid argument until I try to really figure out, like, let me, let me try to outline what's wrong with it because I felt like something didn't work there and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. I still can't find out a problem with it. <clears throat> uh, even though I've heard the whole, like, <clears throat> um, perfect island theory, all this other stuff, th these comparisons. So forgive me if I'm talking past anybody here. The arguments for God are solid. The evidence for God is solid. And to present things uh, online like Christians are assuming God and never proving it is to be very unaware of a lot of really strong evidence for God. I will put some links in the description below. Um, thank you guys for listening so much, especially for the non-believers who did stick with me through this. Um, I, I'm grateful that you at least consider these things, at least think them through. And I like to pray for you right now, actually. Um, Father, I lift up every non-believer who watches this video, that they would be, I, I pray, drawn closer to Jesus Christ, given some logical reason that would draw them closer to Christ, given some work of your spirit directly in their lives, just bringing awareness of sin and of their need for Jesus, um, some incredible help for old, old past bitterness and hurts and angst that they felt re relating to... Um, People they think are were stupid Christians that they met or mean, mean, mean believers. We pray, Father, that their biases against Scripture would fall away as they would see the beauty and the truth of your word. We pray for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. That's it. Thank you all very much. I will see you in two weeks. Two weeks for the next Q&A. And I, I think that's pretty much all I got to say.